Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah. And this is BioEats World, where we talk about all the ways biology is technology. So this episode is with two of our own here at A16Z, Jorge Conde, general partner on the BioFund, and Mark Andreessen, co-founder of the firm, internet pioneer, and coiner of the phrase, software is eating the world, from which our show name is derived. So Hannah, what are they discussing today? The conversation is really a kind of high-level zooming out all about the large-scale societal effects of the current pandemic. Building on Mark's article and call to action, It's Time to Build, Jorge and Mark discuss what needs to be built in healthcare, the impact of COVID-19 on innovation in the industry, will it speed up innovation and how will those effects last or go away once we return to quote-unquote normal, and the possible consequences of a shift in mentality towards and within the biopharma industry. And finally, they discuss what biopharma and venture capital have in common in terms of mindsets around risk and experimentation that might apply far more broadly. So I have the pleasure to introduce Mark Andreessen. For some background, for those that are not familiar with Mark's history, Mark is, well, has an extraordinary background. He's had sort of a leading and central role over the last several decades in helping build the software and internet industries as to what they've become today. I think a good place for us to start is with the sort of the elephant in the room, in the virtual room, as to why we're doing all of this via Zoom versus in person, which of course is COVID-19. So it's obvious that the pandemic has been tragic for so many people, has impacted us all in so many different ways around the world, but it's also catalyzed a lot of change. And it reminds me of the quote that you've said in the past where you've described the world as being a very malleable place, a place that will often reconfigure itself around you much more quickly and easily than you would think as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. How do you think about what will become catalyzed in systems that have, in many ways, become so calcified and stagnant? I'll start with, I guess, a confession, which I think about every morning when I wake up, which is just like, this is the most flabbergasting, astonishing, you know, just like completely bizarre, uh, certainly year I've had in my professional career. Like, I, I am just absolutely astonished, not just obviously by COVID itself, but by the consequences of COVID that have already happened, you know, the ones that aren't even directly health related. And, and basically, my judgment is that there, you know, there's been more profound change on, on a number of fronts in the last six months than the preceding, you know, 10 years. We've talked about a lot of those. And then I think, you know, to the extent the situation continues for a while, I think the, the changes may just cascade from here. You know, they may get much more dramatic. I think, you know, some of those changes are sharply to the negative, and we can talk about those. But I think there are a bunch of changes that are not necessarily to the negative and may actually be to the positive. So the macro thing that I think is basically COVID is a catalyst that is shoving forward the adoption of certain kinds of technology by potentially as much as a decade. And I think there's some, you know, kind of no-brainer kind of examples of that. One is, you know, what we're doing here today, just being able to kind of live much more in a, in a video environment than a real-world travel environment. Another is um, companies of many sizes, shapes, descriptions, running this giant work-from-home distributed work, remote work experiment, really for the first time with, with results that are far more positive than I feared in, in February. And then third is, it is really astonishing that after, in our view, after sort of a 40-year period, you know, where the federal government and other international regulators of applied biological sciences had taken a very risk-off attitude 
trying to suppress risk as much, even at the cost of innovation, that that wasn't happening. There's been a really significant, dramatic kind of overnight shift towards, oh my God, we need to fix this thing and fix this thing. We need biotechnological innovation and, and healthcare innovation as fast as we can possibly get it. And of course, you, you see that most vividly, you know, I would say one in the in just the delivery of healthcare, this sort of massive, all of a sudden shift in authorization of telemedicine being one obvious thing. And then the other is the speed, the, the encouragement of the speed of development of vaccines and therapeutics, right, to the point where the big concern now in the press all of a sudden has turned into, you know, what if a vaccine gets approved too quickly, you know, which is not something that anybody had been worried about, let's say, for decades. And so... So I think th- these changes are as dramatic as I've ever seen and at a much faster rate than I've ever seen. There, there's no uh, Vladimir Lenin quote that we like to use around the office, which is uh, there are decades in which nothing happens. And then there are weeks in which decades happen. And this feels like one of those revolutionary periods in a lot of respects. For sure. It's been remarkable to see across the board. You know, to the extent that right now we're in a wartime footing, you know, that we are reacting with will, you know, and urgency and collaboration because of the pandemic how much of this bill and urgency and sense of collaboration do you think will persist in a post-pandemic environment? In other words, will we snap back to the old ways? Yeah, I mean, the, the most basic mental model, of course, is just things, you know, this is an interim period, kind of, as you said, and things look back to normal. And kind of one of the ways that economists talk about this is there's, you know, just like on the economics as an analogy, right, there's this concept of sort of seasonality in economics, which is basically like the economy actually goes into a giant recession basically every uh, winter after Christmas, you know, for basically six months and then has this huge surge in the second half of the year, you know, heading into the holidays at the end of the year. And so, you know, basically what the economist said early on was maybe this is just going to be basically like a season, like maybe, or, or to your point, like maybe it's just going to be like a short war, right? Maybe it's, it's just going to be like a, I don't know, call it like a Falkland style kind of very short, sharp political or kind of a war environment. And then you kind of come out the other side and you blink and you're like, okay, we're, we're back to life as we knew it today. You know, I think that's one possibility. I think that's unlikely. I think the the societal level implications of this are already too profound for that. And as I said, I think you can say some of those are quite negative and, and, and I think some of those are quite positive. Then there's the sort of second mental framework that I use, which is just basically we're going to fight the last war, right? And so we're going to basically, we're going to do everything in our power for the next 20 years to make sure we never have COVID-19 again. There will be more pandemics in the future, SARS variants or flu variants or whatever. And like, we'll be, I think, extraordinarily prepared for those the next time. And we'll probably take a real belt and suspenders approach to that. And I think that that's good, but it'll be sort of a, a direct counter reaction to specifically what we just went through. And I think that's probably the base case. And then there's the optimistic case. And the optimistic case basically is like, we'll learn a broader set of lessons, right? And so, for example, one of the lessons we'll learn is that we want to be on a basically a forward footing and, for example, biotech innovation in a much more aggressive way going forward than we have in the past. And I'm, I guess I would say I'm you know, somewhat optimistic on that right now. What would make me really optimistic on that is if we get a really effective vaccine or if we get a really effective therapeutic, you know, sort of in the next 12 months. Like if we get like a clean win coming out of biotech, and coming out of the farm industry. And everybody kind of says, oh, my God, like, look how fast they could fix that. Like, what else can they do? And what else can we set them up, right? Them being kind of the R&D part of our industry to, to basically, like, go solve other problems in a much more aggressive way. Or, you know, equivalently, like, oh, my God, this telemedicine thing is, like, absolutely fantastic. And, like, I love it. And I want to, you know, I want to I live in that world in the future as opposed to going through the traditional kind of in-office experience. Or, you know, kind of take your pick. And kind of extrapolate forward and, and give people kind of reason to think that this is actually a world in which much more rapid innovation could happen, not just to prevent the next pandemic, but also on a more sustained basis across more disciplines. And I think there's a real opportunity, and I think we should all do everything we can to jump on it. I'm sure your take of the moment shifts over time. You know, if you were going to handicap, you know, the odds of the optimistic case versus the pessimistic case and where we end up, you know, where are you today versus, say, where you were, call it, a month ago? Yeah, I mean, I think that, let's put it this way, the longer this goes, it's sort of this weird push-pull, which is like the longer this whole period protracts out, I think the more likely you'll get fundamental change out the other side. 
And so I guess like, you know, a reason for pessimism in the here and now is basically right. What all these like schools are seeing right now is, you know, kids kind of go back to school, which is just like, you have all this like sort of unreasonable optimism that it, we can now send kids back to school and there's not going to be any, you know, implications of accelerated COVID spread. And of course that's turning out not to be the case, but you might say that actually tilts you a little bit more optimistic in the long run kind of outcomes, because we have a longer period of time to basically show the results the level of innovation that's happening in COVID, right, across kind of all the domains of vaccines and therapeutics and different ways to care for patients and so forth, like the level of innovation happening now, it may be the largest scaled R&D development effort worldwide, you know, since the Manhattan Project or the Apollo Project. And so, you know, if we just have some time for it to play out when people are actually really paying attention to this topic, you know, maybe a little bit more time living with the virus will have bigger long-term payoffs. So again, not a scenario that I would like welcome and invite, but it, you know, sometimes you get kind of unpredictable results coming out of this. I would also say, I also think the odds of serious legislation and regulatory reform coming out of this are rising. And again, I think you could say for better or for worse, hopefully for better. But like, I think a lot about like 9-11, kind of in, in our memory, you know, kind of in our generation's memory, it's like 9-11 is maybe the most kind of proximate kind of shocking event that's taken place. And of course, you know, kind of you trace post 9-11 and, you know, you got two big outcomes out of 9-11, right? You've got the Patriot Act and, you know, again, good parts and bad parts to it, but like you got really significant profound legislation that really changed how a lot of things were coming out of that. And then of course, you know, <laughs> you also got the invasion of Iraq. That was very big and dramatic change. And so this is the kind of event that could catalyze like really big change. And so one of the things I'd really just have my eye on is how is this going to, you know, maybe this all kind of kicks in after the election, you know, kind of this real process. But, you know, what will be the reforms coming out of this? And it just, it feels like there have to, it feels like they're going to have, they're going to have to pass major legislation. They're going to have to do big things. And then it's just a question of like how well that can be steered towards productive future outcomes. Yeah. And then, and there's also the question of the protections you put in place, how effective can they be going forward? If we look forward at the next pandemic, all right, some experts, many experts would say it's most likely the next pandemic will be a coronavirus or it will be an influenza virus, right? Those are the two very high candidates if we are successful in building new vaccines on new modalities, like whether it's mRNA therapeutic, uh, an mRNA-based vaccine or something similar that allows us to do very rapid response, it seems to me that that's where an early warning system is useful. There's been lots of headlines over the last six months that says, hey, the U.S. missed all the pandemic warnings. But the reality is, you know, had we heeded a lot of the pandemic warnings, it's hard to do anything unless you have a response system. My sense is that if we have a response system, then all of a sudden the warning system actually has actionability associated with it. And that becomes a valuable tool in this fight. Yeah, I was going to look at this through two lenses. So one is, you know, just again, pushing on the 9-11 point a little bit more. There's actually a great book that kind of came out of 9-11. It was published afterwards called The 1% Doctrine. And this is sort of addressing the threat, right, of like, for example, you know, terrorists armed with nuclear or biological weapons. And basically, like Cheney came to the conclusion after 9-11 that the equation that he used was as follows, which is if there's, even if there's only a 1% chance of catastrophic loss from a terrorist attack, you need to adopt, you need to basically take action as if there's 100% certainty that's going to happen. And so it's sort of this kind of asymmetric kind of preemptive response. And again, just to use this as an illustrative example, like if we adopt a posture coming out of this that says if there's only a 1% chance of a kind of a new virus, you know, spreading someplace, uh, there's only 1% chance that it becomes the next COVID, but we need to act like there's 100% chance that it's going to. And then, yeah, the how of that, as you alluded to, is like super interesting. And so I happened to be in a setting last week where I talked to Michael Osterholm, who's one of the kind of leading experts in this field. And he was actually quite pessimistic about kind of future response. And he said, basically, if you look at the history of pandemics and over the last, like basically his career, you know, bird flu and swine flu and SARS and MERS and Ebola, he says, basically, every time you have one of these things, you have this kind of flurry of press coverage, then this flurry of kind of determined kind of statements by every, everybody in position of authority saying, you know, this will never happen again. Like, next time we're going to be in front of this, and then basically nothing changes. 
and so he, his basic assumption is we simply won't learn. And so we'll go back to normal. You know, Ian Lipkin at Columbia and others have these ideas for these kind of pandemic early warning systems. And Michael's response to that was, look, it, it, pandemic early warning system wouldn't have helped us with COVID. Like we knew about COVID. Like, you know, he said, I was on the ground in Wuhan and, you know, the first week of January, like I knew all about it. Like everybody knew about it. And yet we just kind of sat and watched it develop. And then it hit the U.S. and like, you know, here we are. And so it wasn't like we were lacking warning. And so basically, like, why would we expect more warning would help? But again, I think this goes back to like, okay, what could you change in the toolkit, right, that would cause you to change the process and the mentality for dealing with these things? And so specifically, what if you knew you had new technological platforms for rapid development of effective vaccines for things like coronaviruses or influenzas? What if you knew that you had a much more aggressive R&D engine already spun up on the therapeutics, right? What if you knew that you had sensor packages on the wrists and in the pockets of, you know, every American that you could use to be able to track and manage pandemics, Right. I'll give you just another one. Remember test, trace, and isolate? There was a period when we were going to have like all these public health people out, you know, and they admit it was going to be like, you know, there was going to be COVID was found in the community. We we're going to test, trace, and isolate. We're going to do all these things. And like, it just like vanished. And then it's like, remember the Google Apple API, right? They were going to have this API. So we're going to be able to like figure it out on the phones. And literally in the US, like nothing has happened on any, any of that stuff. But it's like, okay, what if we learn from that? What if we fix that after the fact? And what if we're ready the next time? And then what if we just take a much more forward-leaning posture? and try to nip these things in the bud much more aggressively. MERS, SARS, like they never affected the homeland, right? They never really caused problems here. And, and then, you know, in the fullness of time, like swine flu and bird flu were bad, but they weren't this bad. Um, like this is like severe social disruption. And so this feels like one of those events that's going to be like very socially scarring. And that gives you, I think, the opportunity to be able to build new things in the future in a way that maybe people weren't open to in the past. Yeah, it's a fair point. It seems like the length of collective memory is sort of directly related to how broadly that the pain of that memory was shared. And the pain this one has been very, very broadly shared, obviously. People are just like crawling the walls, right? And so it's like, okay, what about another six months, right? And what about another 12 months? And, you know, God forbid, like we don't get effective vaccines or whatever. What about another 18 months or 24 months, right? So I think the profoundness, the depth of the impact that this is going to have on the national psyche, you know, has the potential to be very, very, very deep. You've mentioned uh, toolkits a couple of times, and you recently wrote something that I think could only be described as a manifesto. You titled it A Time to Build. And for those that may not have read it yet, what you wrote was essentially a call to action. And the call to action was that we need to start building the future now. And I think the quote there is, you know, we need a full-throated, unapologetic, aggressive investment in new products, new industries, new factories, and new science in big leaps forward. So that is obviously a very uh, timely call to action. And one of the things that you specifically highlight how unprepared we were and the desperate need for things like PPE and use the example of rain ponchos being requisitioned in, in hospital. I think it was in New York as medical gowns. What should we be spending on time? Or what should we be building right now? I mean, we're obviously looking to build vaccines and, and therapeutics and tests and things like that. Are there other things that we should be looking to build in this environment that maybe wouldn't contribute directly to return on investment, but would be critical nonetheless? Yeah, I guess I should start by saying like why I wrote the essay. So I guess the, the main answer to the question is like, we should build everything <laughs> and we should build everything as aggressively and as rapidly as we can. And I'll, I'll describe what I mean by that. This is sort of an American perspective, although I think it applies to much of certainly the rest of, of the West, it applies to much of Europe as well, which is basically like we as a civilization used to build things, a lot of things, right? And so we used to build cities from scratch, right? Think about the last time a city got built in the US from scratch. You have to go back like 60, 70 years. Like we used to build like entirely new kinds of school systems. We used to build entirely new kinds of like, you know, medical care hospitals. We used to build entirely new kinds of housing. We used to build all kinds of things. 
And we were proud of it, right? So like we had a lot of ways to find the success of the American experiment by being able to basically transform what had been a wilderness into sort of an industrial civilization and be able to kind of benefit from the fruits of that. And that, you know, that whole process is responsible for the lifestyle that we and our families all enjoy today. It is the result of all the building that took place. And and it feels to me that like, you know, and it's felt like this, I think, to a lot of people for a long time now, but it feels like societally we've gotten wedged where we are now really, really good at coming up with reasons not to build things. And it's just like there's this long litany of objections that sort of, you know, come up anytime anybody tries to build, you know, new housing or anybody tries to build a new whatever, whatever, you know, anything new, but, you know, a new university. Like, how would you even go about building a new, you know, we used to build universities like Stanford, you know, we're right down the street from Stanford University, like Leland Stanford, like in whatever, 1890, decided he was going to build a university, right? And there it is, right? And like, you know, where's the next major new research university that's gotten built since then? Like, it effectively doesn't exist. We could all have our own things. It's kind of how we got into the situation in which we basically have a thousand reasons to not build anything, you know, kind of. Some people use the term vetocracy, right? Which basically is like the number of people who are in a veto position to do anything new. One of the markers of kind of civilization is kind of how many people have the right to basically say no. And basically what happens is arguably civilizations advance, right? Is that kind of the, the list of people who get to say no for different reasons expands. And as a consequence, basically nothing happens anymore. I got to the point where I was getting kind of worked up about that anyway. And then I saw this news coverage of like, we can't build medical gowns, apparently. And we need to go like solicit rain ponchos from citizens in the, the city that's supposed to be the jewel of America. It became sort of a howl of frustration. Shouldn't that be how we score? Shouldn't that be how we evaluate the success or failure of different policies, right? Or different approaches? Shouldn't that be how we score basically governments? Shouldn't that be how we score the nonprofit sector? Shouldn't that be how we score companies? You know, every time I talk to a company about this, everybody agrees with me. It's just like, you know, the purpose of getting into the position of a company like yours, or by the way, a firm like ours, the purpose of it is not just to be able to sit and kind of milk the status quo for the next 50 years, right? The purpose is to like get in a position to be able to do new things that really matter in people's lives and to do those things that involves building, right? You know, new projects, new products, new facilities, new factories, new everything. If we could kind of recalibrate the scoring to just like, okay, what's the output? As opposed to what's the process by which we decide what to build? It's like, what's the output? Like, is anything actually coming out at the other end? And again, it goes back to this kind of COVID thing, which is like a, you know, Rahm Emanuel famously said, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Like, one would presume that we will learn coming out of this that like we need the manufacturing capacity in the U.S. to be able to build things like medical gowns, PPE. And by the way, again, you know, the vaccine manufacturing challenge, like we should have been much better set up for that maybe than we were. And you could probably name a thousand other things that are obvious that we need. Many of those things are things that aren't directly relevant to COVID, but maybe if we can get a little bit more on a forward footing in terms of thinking about output and thinking about what gets built, maybe we could also start to chip away at some of these bigger, longer term problems like education, housing, and ultimately the full shape of healthcare. Oh, wait, I love this term. How do you pronounce it? Vitocracy? Vitocracy. Uh, so vitocracy assumes some level of collaboration, right? Um, willingness to collaborate. Like, you can't be not in my backyard about this, right? Well, willingness to collaborate or willingness to get out of the way, right? Yeah. And so my sense is in wartime, there's an element of that willingness. And what I love about your piece is that it's a call to action to maintain that going forward as a mindset. Everything that's actually in our lives that matters to us, every car we drive, every meal we eat, they're all the result of somebody basically saying like, you know, the CEO of Mercedes says, I'm going to build this car, right? And then they go build the car, right? Or Mark Zuckerberg says, I'm going to build Facebook, right? Or somebody says, we're going to do this. And it's like, you know, it's like, you know, every company, like there's, of course, a collaborative element, which is the CEO needs what is now referred to as followership which is maybe a, a software for some form of autocracy, right? So, that, you know, no, no man is an island. And so CEOs need support from the broader team. But like fundamentally, companies are not run like democracies. And, and by the way, nor should they. I don't know about you, but as an investor, like I don't want the companies I invest in to be run like democracies. I want an incredibly strong leader to like put a stake in the ground and say, we're going to do X and then go do it. 
maybe in the private sector, we need a little bit more. And we need, you know, strength of will. And then, of course, like I said, I think the way to measure that is actual output. I want to end on sort of a note that I think is relevant for the audience, which is what we as venture capital share with leaders of the biopharmaceutical industry. And probably one of the most notable things we share is that both of our businesses have a very similar sort of need to manage risk, right? In both cases, we are working in relatively high failure rates, right? Our business and venture capital, we make investments, many of which don't work out. Very long timelines to figure out if something will be a success or a failure. And we live in a world of power law returns, right? Where the big winners return most of the value. You've studied so many industries, including, of course, the venture capital industry. Do you think there's anything that the biopharmaceutical industry can learn from us, from the technology industry, from other industries in terms of how to manage risk? Yeah, so I think pharma, you know, as you said, kind of, I think pharma probably understands this model, the venture capital or power law payoff model better than almost anybody else, just because, as you said, kind of the nature of the business and the pharma industry has probably been doing this even longer than kind of tech VCs have. So I think there's probably a large amount of shared understanding there. I think a couple of things I'd highlight. One is just, I've become convinced that the venture capital payoff model just simply applies a lot more broadly than everybody thinks. And so uh, there's a friend of mine, Henry Ellenbogen, who was the leading investor for a long time at T. Rowe Price, the leading growth investor in the world. Basically, you know, a very small number of winners in venture capital generate all the returns. This is kind of the key to how we operate, which by the way, means we can tolerate actually a lot of loss along the way, right? A lot of failed experiments. And he actually, um, you know, basically went off and ran the numbers. And he basically said in the stock market, it's basically the same thing. There's various academic studies in this that have come out since, but it's something like 4% of the stocks in the U.S. public stock market in the last 100 years have delivered nearly 100% of the value of the profit gain. And then it's like the majority, I think it's either, you know, half or more than half might be a majority of stocks over that course of 100 years have destroyed value. It's kind of maybe kind of obvious, but like Walmart creates just, you know, giant amounts of value. And then there's just a large number of retailers that go public and fall apart. And so you, again, you kind of see that venture capital or kind of asymmetric payoff space in the public markets. I think we've just seen it all throughout the world. I think we've actually, honestly, over time, you know, over the course of centuries, we've seen it in, in countries. I think you see it in the U.S. at the level of cities. There were a lot more cities that wanted to be New York and Chicago than ended up being New York and Chicago. You see it in open source projects, by the way, in software. You see you know, massive payoff from certain projects like Linux, and you see a much larger number of projects that never go anywhere. And so this might be also just kind of a societal level thing or a more broad thing, which is it's just like, because what you want to do is you kind of, kind of as, as sort of civilization advances, you kind of want to think that you're reducing danger, right? Kind of the whole point of civilizing, right, is to kind of take the danger out, take the risk out. Like the tiger is not going to come over the hill and eat you because like you're prepared for it, right? And you've got like, you know, spears and walls and fires and all these things that you've kind of, you know, assembled over time to protect you against the risk. And it's just like, maybe that's just the wrong model. Maybe just a more strong offensive footing and being willing to take bigger flyers and being able to tolerate more losses will just deliver much more aggregate payoff across a much broader range of activities. For example, how companies should think about M&A. Which is like basically like every big company board meeting I've ever been in where, and I've been in a bunch where they kind of score the results of M&A programs, you know, a year later, three years later, five years later. It's always with the kind of bubble chart of basically like, here are the 10 acquisitions we did. And then here's like, you know, it's red, yellow, or green in terms of how well they're doing. And it's like, you know, the board sits around the table. And if there's a lot of red on the slide, the board is very concerned and for a browse and somebody probably made a mistake. And if there's lots of green, like the board is very happy and good job, guys, and bonuses for everybody. But it's like, that's not really the thing, right? Because what you really want to do, like if you're doing acquisitions, you want to look, in my view, you want to look at all 10 of those acquisitions or whatever the number is as a basket. And then you want to evaluate the basket, right? And if the basket had 70% strikeouts, right? But 30% grand slams and the basket in aggregate delivered returns of, you know, whatever, 5X or something, 
Well, then it just, again, it's like the venture capital model. Like it just doesn't matter what happened with failures because from a shareholder standpoint, you've more than made up for it with the winners, which by the way, is what I've always seen with M&A, right? Most of them don't work. And then you have a small number that kind of, you just hit squarely out of the park. And, you know, maybe a lot of companies should kind of recalibrate their cultures and their performance systems and their ideas of executive accountability and their compensation systems and so forth and be able to kind of lean harder into this model. You know, another question you might ask is like, is the world getting more or less predictable? And I think we all kind of naturally think that the world's getting more predictable because presumably we're figuring a lot of things out over time. But like, I think the opposite might be true. (laughs) And I think the last few years might illustrate that, which is like, I think the world might be getting less predictable, right? Because I think it might be getting more complex, more moving parts, more agents kind of at play in the system. And so maybe we need to kind of recalibrate more of how we run major institutions along the lines of anticipating more complexity and the venture capital or the biopharma kind of model is a framework that people can use that is a different way to think about risk and return. I think one of the remarkable things about taking big bets and taking big swings is that the winners not only uh, can hopefully make up for all of the losses and generate returns in the basket, as you say, but also going back to where we started, have the potential to transform the future and to change the world. And that's obviously so much of what happens in this industry. When you do have winners, they transform patients' lives and they hopefully even cure disease. The other part of that answer, which is maybe the more directly relevant part, is some of you may know, like when we started our firm, we actually didn't even intend to do biotech. We actually had in our original pitch deck, <laughs> we won't do biotech. Now, the good news is whenever you put that kind of thing in a pitch deck, you always kind of know at some point you're going to be coming back in the future and apologizing. And that very much was the case of us and our investors when we decided to launch this bio program five years ago. You know, our evaluation of why we changed our strategy to do what we're doing, which was that basically, right, software had sufficiently colonized the biological sciences and that the engineering mindset, which was where we had come out of, was becoming more relevant to biology. And so we basically decided that it was feasible within the sort of model of the world as we understand it and the kind of innovation we understand to try to apply more of that mindset into biotech. We're not the only people who have observed this, but like that's the other side of this is it may be that the infusion of software and big data and deep learning, right, and the engineering mentality, right, the concept of engineering biology and synthetic biology and so forth, it may be that we can actually reduce the cost of the experiments a lot as compared to the last 20 or 30 years. And then, of course, that then would mean that we collectively, you know, we and you could lean much harder into a potentially larger number of experiments at lower per unit cost and then potentially with like dramatically increased payoff. And so, so anyway, like that, I would just say this, that's what we believe. That's why we're doing what we're doing in bio. We see many amazing entrepreneurs who kind of have first class basically training in both computer science and biology who are now going after this new model. Um, And so again, I think that's a reason for considerable optimism. Like this industry collectively, like all of us can deliver potentially much better results in the next 30 years than we all collectively have in the last 30 years. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z Bio newsletter at a16z.com newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.